the land identified as Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, was a succession of, I guess, civilizations and nation states that arose. In the same way that you have in a European context, Rome, Rome became an empire, but it was essentially one city that became strong. So Assyrians get their name from the city-state, Ashur, in the same way that Babylonians get their name from Babylon and so on. The Assyrian people, they presided over empires, various different sized empires containing different lands stretching from Egypt all the way to Iran. Throughout this land, you have sheer wealth of archaeological artifacts, material heritage. I mean, only still a fraction of it has been excavated properly. There's still so much underground that even when ISIS had taken over and they were destroying these artifacts, as they were destroying them, they were discovering new artifacts. That's how sad it was. And this heritage being fought over or destroyed by people who don't seem to value it enough. Vice Vice. Vice World News presents the unfiltered history tour. Colonialism as told through 10 objects. My name is Max J. Joseph. I'm an artist and a writer currently based in London. And I've been working on various Assyrian-related issues for over a decade now, whether it is through cultural preservation, humanitarian work, activism, advocacy, all kinds of stuff given my background as an Assyrian myself. Most of this artwork was obviously commissioned by kings. They wanted to show off, essentially. Ashurbanipal, the greatest king that Assyria has ever known, sitting astride a chariot with his men, either side of him, holding bows, spears and arrows, on a lion hunt. Some of things were about showing off. Some things were propaganda campaigns about how great they were, how great they're treating everyone. Some were just exalting themselves and what they provided to their own people. So the king back then was seen as the protector. He's the only one that can protect the people from enemy forces, hostile enemies. And you've seen this mostly, for example, with the lion reliefs, which is one of the most famous panels in the British Museum. A whole set of reliefs depicting the Assyrian kings hunting and killing lions. Now, lions did actually exist in Mesopotamia. They were hunted into extinction. They were like a menace that were plaguing farmlands, you know, killing sheep and cattle. They weren't seen as these majestic creatures that we see today. They were a neighborhood menace almost, roaming around in the plains. But they were still lions, right? So they were still powerful, vicious. They, could, they were huge threats. The Assyrian kings used to commission these panels to show them protecting the people from the lions, the threat. So there's these different strands of history that come through with these reliefs, different values and principles, different struggles that the king was trying to get hold of and to reassure the people around him that he's the guy, he's the man. And these reliefs try to depict that. Most of the reliefs stayed exactly where they were for thousands of years, all the way up until the 18th and 19th century, who accelerated massively in the 19th century. So this all happened under the auspices of the Ottoman authorities, 
Now, this was towards the end of Ottoman rule, as their empire disintegrated after World War One. But most of these reliefs were first identified and essentially taken away by Western explorers, adventurers, and so on. The main motivation, however, for why these guys were there in the first place, people like Austin Henry Layard, very famous British explorer, diplomat, and so on, came from a religious perspective. There was a lot of stuff in the Bible related to Assyria, to Nineveh, to Jonah and the whale. You had all kinds of stuff going on in the Bible about Assyrians. And there was a lot of nobility in the UK and America that was very interested in trying to, I guess, prove that all of these things happened by finding material objects that relate to them. There was so much money invested in this pursuit. It became a trade between empires. So what essentially took place was you'd have these adventurers, explorers and missionaries go to these far-flung reaches where no one used to travel to just because they heard a local or someone, there was some word that was passed down that so-and-so exists here and so on. They would go and investigate and they would hire teams of locals to go and dig up everything. And the laborers who were doing most of this digging obviously were local people around, but many of them were also Assyrians who saw these travelers, these European travelers, who said, we're Christians now, because the Syrians were, saw these European travelers to be Christians, and immediately saw some kind of outlet, some kind of connection to the outside world. Because for centuries, the Syrians have been frozen in the midst of different empires. So essentially what happened was, you had Ottoman bureaucrats signing off papers they didn't even know what they were doing this was in the early in the 19th century to british explorers travelers and excavators that just wanted to take this stuff with them some of these lamassus for example those giant winged bulls that everyone sees in the british museum but also exist in the louvre in new york and so on some of them were even cut up and separated then and there they were destroyed and then rebuilt in paris in new york and so on the level of brazenness that happened, take everything over, was never been seen before. They were obsessed with getting all of these antiquities over to the West. At that time, these empires all had these connections. They weren't always at war. They had trading connections. To them, these antiquities were commodities in the Ottoman state. They were like, we're just trading stuff we don't really want with someone who wants it. That's how they were viewed. Growing up in London, I mean, the British Museum is an institution that everyone sees through school trips, through everything else. And for me, being of a Syrian background, I've been disconnected from my own heritage, right? Because I'm in diaspora, with most Assyrians living in their homelands today, that is now Iraq, Turkey, Iran and Syria. We haven't seen our own material heritage. So growing up and going to the British Museum when I was a child, that was my first experience of my own ancient heritage and it was bittersweet really on one hand this was absolutely amazing and i was stunned by it and i used to make trips on my own there to just go see these artifacts and these antiquities because i felt some kind of connection finally in my life with some kind of heritage but on the other hand, because it's such a contentious issue and the politicization of these 
artifacts and the antiquities, the politics around, you know, who gets to keep what, where, where they are and so on. That really darkened a lot of my experiences as well, especially given that Assyrian continuity, as it's called in academia, is something that's still sadly contested. I.e., are we really Assyrians? <laughs> so I'm standing there going, yes, I am, because I speak the language, I have generations of history and so on. So that was my experience growing up with these antiquities and what my families and relatives used to show me. Because you feel like a foreigner wherever you go now, if you're an Assyrian. So whether you're in diaspora in America, or in Sweden, or in Australia, which is many, where many Assyrians live today, you're never really accepted as someone from those areas, especially given that they have their own cultural background, history, and so on. It's always the case, I mean, in bars, if you're in a bar, you're having a drink, you meet someone, someone says, hey, where are you from? I just say, yeah, I'm, you know, because I was born in London, but I'm clearly, it's just there's that looming question that comes afterwards. So where are you really from? And that question is the bane of my existence because that's not a simple answer for me. <laughs> you have to go into all kinds of history and politics to explain just who you are. Before the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there was over a million Assyrians in Iraq. Now there's fewer than 250,000. And that, for me, is a population movement, if you were to be using the light term, of seismic, undescribable proportions. And obviously, the exclamation point at the end of all of that was the genocide at the hands of ISIS. So the Assyrian diaspora, there's more Assyrians now that live outside of their homeland than that live in it. And I'm including all four states that Assyrians are from in that region. Iraq, Turkey, Syria and Iran. So much of our legacy involves being constantly on the move, settling in areas that don't necessarily accept us or even acknowledge us as a people, and trying to live with that. Because most of our families and their families and their ancestors, they've always been persecuted under some kind of violent duress or forced to move and so on. And this has continued up into the present day, all the way up until 2014. When ISIS attacked the Assyrian heartland in Nineveh, all the remaining Assyrian villages there were abandoned. Both the Iraqi army and the Kurdish Peshmerga fled. Despite squabbling and fighting for control of the area, everyone had betrayed us then, and we didn't have anyone except ourselves. When Assyrians hear the arguments for repatriation today, we agree we want to see this heritage returned. The problem is the people arguing about it do not want anything to do with us, do not see us and do not include us. For us, we have jokers to the left of us and clowns on the right, and we're struggling to be heard amid all of the noise that they're making.
you have these two arguments. So the argument that says, no, these antiquities belong where they are right now, which is Western institutions, you know, like the British Museum, the Louvre and so on, because if there was an agreement drafted between two state entities, and that's that. That's the agreement from the, actually the British Museum side. Ashurbanipal is the most famous king that Assyrians ever had, and the British powers knew that. And there's this seduction of power and this alignment of power and this desire to have power, to have the greatest king available in your own building, your own institution. There's a big badge of honor. It's like a trophy. The repatriation argument is there's no actual basis for why the agreement exists in the first place. The same argument is actually made for the Elgin marbles, for example. The argument to repatriate them was there was no basis for them to be taken between the people who decided for them to be taken. Lord Elgin had an agreement with the Ottomans and essentially flew in the face of Greece because they Greece viewed that territory as occupied Greece. During the Ashurbanipal exhibition at the British Museum in 2019, there were protests outside that museum because Iraqis wanted this heritage to be returned. Now, joining that protest, there was almost no Assyrians, unfortunately, because we were never really included. And the whole idea that they should be returned to Iraq, there's a lot of tension for us. We want them to be returned, but we also want to return. <laughs> so it, it, that can't be reconciled. And at the moment, that's where Assyrians sit with this. So. Many Assyrians will say, yes, we want these things, these heritage pieces, this priceless material heritage to be returned. But what about us? We feel like there's a grave injustice there to even ask for them to be returned without us even being acknowledged or mentioned by the state of Iraq. The main argument, I would say, is that Iraq needs to do far more to reconstruct and rebuild the areas where Assyrians live in Iraq that was ravaged by ISIS all across Nineveh. At the moment, it's still in mostly in rubble. One of the compromises that Assyrians will have is to say, rebuild our areas. And if you want all of this stuff returned, return them to where they were. Return them to Nineveh. Return them to where they were excavated from. House them in proper facilities. So Assyrians who still live there can wake up every day and see them if they like. Because that is the compromise for us. The compromises we want both of us to return and our areas to be rebuilt and redeveloped and also for Assyrians to be acknowledged as an indigenous people of Iraq that's still not acknowledged we're still seen as outsiders this podcast was produced by Callum Perrin with support from Jesse Lawson and research from Marta Vanderwolf this episode features sounds from BP or not BP the Unfiltered History Tour is a Vice World News production.